If you have your Bibles, I'll invite you to turn with me to John chapter 16. John 16 will be picking up where we left off in the middle of verse 4. You can find that on page 959 of the Pew Bibles. If you don't own a good Bible, please take that as our gift to you this morning. Again, that's John 16, beginning in the middle of verse 4. I left a Christmas party this year with the Questions for Humans card deck. Shout out to the Chapmans for the gift. If you're not familiar with it, it's a deck of cards with different conversation starters. This particular one is for parents and their kids. The questions are like, uh, which animal would make a good doctor and why? Our kids thought monkeys because they have uh, good fingers and they're smart. Makes sense. Other questions are like, what's something you don't understand about adults? Pavey, our six-year-old, doesn't understand why we can eat snacks anytime we want. (laughs) It's because we have no issue eating lunch or dinner. Some of the questions are more penetrating, like, when do you feel most safe? We asked our children this last week, and Haddon, our seven-year-old, responded by saying, when I'm with mommy and daddy and when I know that God is with me. Cue the tears. Children with halfway decent parents are inclined to believe that they're safe, invincible almost in the presence of their parents. Jane, our two-year-old, asked me this last week, we were in the car, do sharks eat people? Before I could respond, Josie, our four-year-old, assured her in all of her wisdom, and I quote, yeah, they do. (laughs) And sometimes when sharks try to eat you, mommy and daddy protect you. Not the answer I would have given. (laughs) It would be lodged in Jane's brain when we go to the beach this summer. The sharks are out to get me, but mommy and daddy will save me. When do you feel most safe? There's nothing more comforting than being in the presence of someone whom you know to be smarter and stronger than you, whom you know loves you because you've seen them take care of you. And there's nothing more frightening than being away from the one or two people whom you believe to be at the center of what makes your universe safe. Hey, don't believe me, try being a toddler's very first babysitter. Right, as a parent, you save that tidbit of information to the very end. You see, we're comforted when we're, those, when we're with those who love us. More specifically, when we're with those who take care of us, those who provide for us, those who protect us, those who nurture and guide us. We're troubled when we are away from them. This is life in a scary world 101. When I'm with you, I'm safe. When I'm apart from you, I'm vulnerable. Here's where we find ourselves in the upper room discourse. On the eve of Jesus' crucifixion, he's told the disciples and us that Judas will betray him, that Peter will fall away. Not only that, but Christ, the smarter, the stronger, the loving, the caring one, not just that, their God and their Messiah is leaving. It's not just that Jesus is leaving the disciples, it's that the disciples won't be able to follow him. John 13, 36. It's not just that we can't follow him yet, it's how he's leaving by means of a bloody death. It's not just that Christ will be tried as a criminal, found guilty of blasphemy, and hung to die by the Jews and the Gentiles. It's that what's going to happen to him 
we can expect to happen to us. John 15, 19, I have chosen you out of it. The world hates you. John 15, 20, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. John 16, 2, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think that he is offering service to God. This is like mommy and daddy are going on a date, but don't worry, your babysitter is a shark. Greatest fears confirmed. Christ is leaving us by means of a death that we can expect to suffer ourselves. We're alone. We're not safe. He's abandoned us. Now, this isn't what's happening, but it's probably what the disciples are feeling. That they are being deserted, that they're heading for destruction. Their hearts have been troubled time and again. And so Christ turns to give them a word of comfort. Jesus mentions, as one medieval commentator put it, the one thing, the only thing that can console them, the Holy Spirit. For the fifth and final time in the farewell discourse, Jesus draws our attention to the promised comforter and counselor. You see, Christ will be physically absent, yes, but spiritually present as he indwells his people through the Holy Spirit. The Spirit unites us to Christ, bringing with him the presence of the triune God and every benefit that is to be had in Jesus. It's because of the Spirit that Christ lives in us and us in him. It's because of the Spirit that God could not be any closer. We couldn't be less alone. We couldn't be any more safe than we are. This is a comfort, but it's not just a comfort for comfort's sake. Jesus sends the Spirit to ensure that his mission will go on in his bodily absence. See, the ascended Christ sends the Christ-testifying Spirit to preach to the world through the Word. Case in point, Peter. How does Peter go from denying Christ to preaching like a lion in Acts chapter 2? To preaching to those who called for Christ's death, the power of the Spirit. How do 3,000 of those people respond in faith in repentance? The power of the Spirit. Jesus gives us the Spirit to continue his mission. The Spirit gives us courage. He gives us words. He is the power in our preaching. Jesus is with us and intends to continue to go to work through us. This is the promise of the Spirit. John chapter 16, beginning in verse 4. If you're able, I'll invite you to stand with me in reverence for the reading of Holy Scripture. We begin in the middle of verse 4. This is Christ speaking. I didn't tell you these things from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going away to him who sent me, and not one of you asks, where are you going? Yet because I have spoken these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I am telling you the truth. It is for your benefit that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. About sin because they do not believe in me. About righteousness because I am going to the Father and you will no longer see me. And about judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I still have many things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. 
When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. He will also declare to you what is to come. He will glorify me because he will take from what is mine and declare to you. Everything the Father has is mine. This is why I told you that he takes from what is mine and will declare it to you. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. You can be seated. Our big idea this morning, Jesus sends the Spirit to convict the world and guide the church through the word. Jesus sends the Spirit to convict the world and guide the church through the word. It's a little longer, I'll say it one more time. Jesus sends the Spirit to convict the world and guide the church through the word. Put differently, the Spirit is the invisible prosecutor of the world and the interior teacher of the church. He is what gives our preaching its power. We have two points this morning, really one encouragement for two reasons. First, preach the word, knowing that the Spirit uses it to convict the world. And secondly, preach the word, knowing the Spirit uses it to guide the church. Preach the word, knowing the Spirit uses it to convict the world. Preach the word, knowing the Spirit uses it to guide the church. To convict the world and guide the church. First, preach the word, knowing the Spirit uses it to convict the world. We begin in the middle of verse 4. Jesus says, I didn't tell you these things from the beginning because I was with you. What are these things that Jesus didn't tell the disciples from the beginning? It seems to be the sum of the farewell discourse, namely, that he's physically leaving them, the extent that they will share in his suffering, and especially the promise of the Holy Spirit. They didn't need to know this in particular because Jesus is already with them, bodily present. But they're especially hearing the first two. This is why they respond, verse 6, with sorrowful hearts. And yet, as we saw in John 15, 11, Jesus is telling us all of this so that we would have his joy and so that our joy would be complete. Jesus is telling us all of this, John 14, 27, so that we would have and experience his peace. Jesus is telling us all of this so that we would have and know his love, John 15, 9. How can the news of Jesus' departure and our persecution lead to joy and love and peace? Jesus, as strange as it sounds, leaves to give us something better. Jesus puts us in a better position. Brothers and sisters, Jesus never puts us in a worse position than he found us in. He improves our state every single time without exception. It might not look how we want it to. You might find yourself even in this season in a valley. But Jesus is always working for our good, always leading us to green pasture. We see that here in leaving us physically, Jesus is actually drawing more closely to us through the Holy Spirit. Christ has ascended higher than we can comprehend so that he could dwell more closely to us than we are to ourselves. He puts us in a better position. This is what he tells us, verse 7, it's 
for your benefit. It's for your good. It's better for you even that I go away because if I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. If I go, I will or I can send him to you. Do you guys ever daydream about what your life would look like if you had done something differently? Like if only I had gone to grad school or taken that internship or accepted that job or stayed with that guy or moved to that city. Like imagine where I'd be. What my house would look like, how much more money I would have, how much happier I'd be. If I'd done X, my life would look like Y. Probably natural for most of us. Do you ever daydream spiritually? Like if I saw Moses descend the mountain with tablets of stone, then I would obey the law. It would be easy. If I saw Elijah call down fire on wet wood in front of Baal's prophets, I would worship God alone. I'd be an idol smasher. If I saw Jesus in the flesh, if I ate the bread he multiplied, if I was on the mount he gave the sermon on, I would be a faithful evangelist. I would preach the risk of death from here to the ends of the earth. No, you probably would not. In reality, the best, the very best and most fruitful time to be living in redemptive history, apart from the end, it's now. It's this side of Jesus' resurrection and ascension. It's this side of Easter and Pentecost. What we have now is better, without exception, than what anyone had before Acts chapter 2. Jesus says, it's for your benefit. It's better that I go away. Why? If I don't go, the counselor will not. He cannot come to you. If I go, I will send him. You see, Jesus had to defeat sin first on the cross. He had to rise from the grave as new creation. He had to ascend to the throne before he could send the Spirit. Why? Because the Spirit simply applies the work of salvation to the people of God. Jesus came first. This is salvation accomplished. The Spirit comes next. This is salvation applied. It is better, far better, to have the Spirit of Jesus in us than to have the body of Jesus next to us. As Calvin noted, as we've heard time and again, as long as Christ remains outside of us, he is of no benefit to us. It is the Spirit who unites us to Jesus, making all that is his ours, his righteousness, ours, his adoption, ours, his peace and joy and life and love, ours. If Jesus had not gone, the Spirit would not have come. If the Spirit would not have come, Christ wouldn't be as near as he is. We wouldn't be one with him. As strange as it sounds, it is better for us that Jesus has ascended so that the Spirit could descend. In leaving, he's actually come closer to all of us. Now, how is this possible? We want to think well about it. As Augustine noted, the Spirit doesn't replace Jesus. No, Augustine writes of the persons where any one of them is there, the Trinity. There is the Trinity, one God. The Father is in the Son who is in the Spirit who is in the Father. Okay, but here the disciples' hearts are heavy because all they're hearing is that Jesus is leaving them. Bodily, yes, but in reality, he's coming closer in a new and better way. One that is better than Christ across the table, it's Christ in the heart. Jesus comes so close we are engrafted into him like a branch onto the vine. Brothers and sisters, be comforted knowing that Jesus lives in you. 
that Jesus has not left you, that Jesus will never leave you, that you are in him and he is in you, that you have been hidden in him who is hidden in God. But again, this isn't comfort just for comfort's sake. As we saw in chapter 15, verse 26 and 27, the Spirit has come to testify to Christ. The Spirit has come, in a sense, to preach. He is the witness or the power that makes all of us witnesses to Christ. I think if we are honest, too many of us, too many Christians treat their spiritual lives as though they're living in John Krasinski's A Quiet Place. I can be guilty of this. The Holy Spirit is not content to quietly reside in a church that is trying to quietly reside in the world. Like the goal is not to not be caught. The Spirit comes to testify to Christ through the church as it preaches the word to the world. Brothers and sisters, we can preach a great confidence because the Spirit is what gives our preaching its power. We see this in 1 Thess chapter 1 and Paul says our gospel did not come to you in word only but also in power in the Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit's power look like in preaching? We see it in verse 8. It starts with prosecution or conviction. Jesus says verse 8, this may come as a surprise to you speaking of the Spirit. When he comes he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. One commentator put it simply and well, the Spirit shows the world that it is wrong about what is wrong, about what is right, and who wins. The Spirit shows the world that it is wrong about what is wrong. It is wrong about what is right. It is wrong about who wins. The world's moral compass is reversed. In our culture, death means life. Slavery is freedom. Lawlessness is justice. Though God's law is clear to the world in conscience and nature and in the word, the world suppresses it. And so the Holy Spirit, through the preaching of the word, convicts the world. That is, it gives the world an understanding and the feeling of guilt and the dread of judgment. The Spirit is the interior prosecutor of the world, pricking its conscience through the preaching of the truth. He's come to convict. When I was in college, we had a preacher who would regularly come to campus, Preacher Bob, as we called him. He would stand in very high, I don't know, maybe you guys had a Preacher Bob, you probably did. He would uh, stand in very high traffic areas. Sometimes he'd bring signs, sometimes he had a megaphone. His message was always the same. You're going to hell. And he would give more explanation. If you're in a fraternity, you're going to hell. If you're in a sorority, you're going to hell. If you're neither, you're going to hell. No need for a manuscript. It was pretty simple. Preacher, preacher Bob made uh, fire and brimstone preachers sound like the snowstorm that's coming. This guy was all law, no grace, no heaven, all hell. His Jesus came not to save but to condemn. There was no love in his heart, no compassion on his lips. There was no chance at salvation, only the announcement of ruin. Hey, don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying about the Spirit. The Spirit is not like Preacher Bob. He doesn't come to condemn. He comes to convict for the purpose of salvation. Recall why Jesus came. John chapter 3, 16 and 17. For God loved. 
God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. The father did not send the son to condemn but to save. The son has not sent the spirit to condemn but to save. God comes into the world as son and spirit to save. The Son came to live and to die on behalf of sinners, to rise from the grave. The Spirit comes to apply that work in our hearts and it begins as He convicts us about our sin, our lack of righteousness, and the judgment that is to come. He exposes our helplessness in the preaching of the Word that we might turn to the only one who can help us, Jesus. You see, the Spirit's goal is the Son's goal, is the Father's goal, saving sinners from what they are due. His conviction is an act of grace and mercy. And yet, make no mistake about what the Spirit works through. The preaching of the gospel, which includes, which is in part news about sin and righteousness and judgment. The Spirit convicts about sin, that we have rebelled against God. The Spirit convicts us of our greatest sin. Verse 9, the sin by which every other sin remains, unbelief. The Spirit convicts about righteousness, that our deeds before God are like filthy rags, Isaiah 64. That our wages don't deserve heaven, but hell. That the only way that we can be righteous is by trusting in the one who was killed like a criminal, and yet who has ascended on high. The Spirit convicts us about judgment. Verse 11, the cross is an open display to the world that its ruler is wrong. To follow him, Ephesians 2, is to follow the one who is heading toward wrath. The cross, Colossians 2, is where he was put on shame for all to see as an open display. You see, through the preaching of the word, the Spirit gives the world conviction of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He gives the world the gift of of guilt and fear of what's to come so that he can lead people out of the world into the arms of Christ. Non-Christian friend, this is the most important news you will ever hear in your entire life and it is not an exaggeration. You were made by God as an act of his grace and love. You were made to be in relationship with him forever and yet you have spurred his goodness You have turned to your own way. You have sought to make yourself a king above him. You deserve to be punished for your sin, but God in his love, in his mercy, in his kindness, sent his son to die in your place so that you could live forever with him. Jesus offers you this as a gift. You can't be good enough to receive it or earn it. Jesus gives it to you as a gift we would encourage you to receive that gift today. We would love to talk to you about it. We love talking about Jesus here at NBC. Brothers and sisters, the Spirit has not come to condemn the world over their sin, but to convict the world. He does this through the preaching of the gospel. He is what gives our preaching its power. Preaching the gospel without the Spirit's power is like using a defibrillator that doesn't have charge. Preaching the gospel without mention of sin or righteousness or judgment is like mistaking your hands for a defibrillator. 
It's not close to having any power. The Spirit convicts the world about these things as we preach about them. The Spirit stands ready inside all of us to proclaim the most wonderful message of the world that our sins can be forgiven by the one we initially rejected, that we can be righteous in the one who has ascended on high, and that we can escape the judgment that should have been for all of us. We can preach with confidence, brothers and sisters, because it's not our skill or our smarts that gives the message its power, but God. It's the Spirit who brings the dead to life. It's the Spirit who opens the eyes of the blind. It's the Spirit who gives understanding. It's the Spirit who teaches and convicts and is pleased to do it through you. Brothers and sisters, he's pleased to do it through you. I suspect we often don't share the gospel with our family and friends because we feel like they are beyond our convincing. We feel like they could be less interested in the things of God. They love their sin too much. The idea of judgment makes them yawn. They're set in their ways. Maybe they already think they're Christians. Yes, and such were all of us before the Spirit spoke to our hearts through the preaching of the word and saved us. Brothers and sisters, there is not one single person in your life that you can bring to conviction of sin, period. That's not your job. And get this, there is not one single person in your life that the Spirit can't bring the conviction of sin to through the preaching of the Word. Don't confuse His job for your job. His job is to convict and convince. Don't confuse your job for His job. Yours is to prayerfully preach. The Spirit works and works only through the preaching of the Word by the church. Brothers and sisters, if we see lack of conversion, it's not because of the lack of Spirit's power. It's probably because there's lack of preaching. I would encourage you, especially here at the beginning of the year, to think about who's one person this or next month that you could pray for and share the gospel with. Let's join the Spirit in His work testifying to Christ as we preach. I know many of you do this regularly and I praise God for it. Let's do it all the more. We can preach the gospel with great confidence knowing the Spirit uses it to convict the world. We can also preach the word with great confidence knowing the Spirit uses it to guide the church. Preach the word knowing the Spirit uses it to guide the church. Now again, think of the context here. Christ, whom the disciples have left everything to follow, he's just told his followers that one of them will betray them the leader will fall away for a period christ himself will ascend to heaven and persecution awaits you can imagine how disorienting they must feel like how will the disciples make it how will the new church go on this is what jesus gives us in verses 12 through 15 jesus says i still have many things to tell you but you can't bear them now when the spirit of truth comes he will guide you into all truth For he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. He will also declare to you what is to come. Notice Christ, the ascended Christ, continues to guide his people. How does he do it? Verse 13, through the Spirit. And what does the Spirit guide us into? Verse 13, into all truth. The Spirit doesn't guide us into feeling or opinion or cultural whim or what's popular, but 
the truth. We have not been tasked with making and following our own truths. There is not such a thing. God in his kindness guides us into what is true by means of his spirit. And what is this truth that Jesus leads us into by means of the spirit? John 14, 6. It's Jesus. He's the truth. This is why the spirit of Christ is called the spirit of truth. John 16, 13. So what is the spirit about? How does he guide the church? He does so through the truth about Jesus Christ, which we can find in scripture alone. You see there in verse 12, Christ tells them that he has many more things to tell the disciples. Christ's time with them is ending. His hours with them is drawing to an end. And apart from a few key teachings here on love, on union with God, on the cost of discipleship, Jesus can only tell them so much in these last hours. Okay, the mental and emotional anguish that they're experiencing, they can only bear so much. Nobody is taking notes. Right? Peter just heard about persecution. He's sharpening the sword. Christ has more to say. They can't bear it. Now, more importantly, they won't fully understand until the other side of the cross and resurrection, which manifests the glory of God. And further still, on the other side of Pentecost, where the spirit of truth falls, it's when the spirit comes that he reminds the apostles, John 14, 26, of all that Christ had spoken to them. It's in that he illuminates the events that have not yet come, but that are coming. At this point, that's resurrection, ascension, Pentecost. No doubt Christ's second coming as well. But notice that all of the content is about Jesus. Everything that Jesus wants us to know, he will make available to us through the Spirit-inspired word. This is how the Spirit leads us. Peter writes of Scripture, in 2 Peter chapter 1, no prophecy of Scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. If you want to know the things that Christ wants you to know, if you want to be led into all truth by the Spirit, then you have got to read the Bible. We will not find the truth out in a world that is dead wrong about what is right and wrong and what is to come. We must find the truth here. If you want to hear from God, you must hear from him in his word. And brothers and sisters, we can be confident that the spirit who inspired the authors will also give us understanding. He loves to lead the people of God into truth. This is why he came. It's important for us to see that it's not enough to simply hear the words of Holy Scripture. The Holy Spirit must also speak them inside of us. We need him as an interior teacher, never saying more that's in it, but making it alive to us, helping us to understand its spiritual content, leading us to trust it, causing us to obey it. Apart from the Spirit's voice, the word falls on deaf ears. This means we are utterly and always dependent upon the grace of God. In one sense, walking in the truth is as easy as opening the Bible or coming to church. God reveals himself here. In another sense, it's not that easy because we need God to go to work in us. We're always in need of his grace. We can't corner God to give us godliness. 
Learning facts is not enough. We need God the Spirit to speak, to enliven, to stir, to teach through the preaching of the Word. We need Him to speak in our hearts that we might understand and love and follow, and He loves to do this. It's why He came. Verse 13, Jesus tells us He will not speak on His own, but He will speak whatever He hears. Now, we've heard this before. You'll recall John 14, 24, Jesus says, The one who doesn't love me will not keep my words. The word that you hear is not mine, but is from the Father who sent me. Okay, to hear the words of the Son is to hear perfectly the words of the Father. But now we know to hear the words of the Spirit is to hear the words of the Son, which is to hear the words of the Father. Again, if you made a Venn diagram of the Father's, Son's, and Spirit's words, it would be a circle. The Spirit never speaks beyond what the Son gives him who himself is always drawing us back to the source who is the Father. Why? There's one God, one nature, one wisdom, one plan of salvation, one message to his people. The Father only speaks by his Son and through the Spirit, and he speaks to us one message. Little children are crafty little creatures. They do this thing where they ask one parent one thing, and then when they don't get what they want to hear, they ask the other parent the same thing. Like, Mom, can you watch show tonight? No. Dad, can you watch show tonight? Yes. But then Jess and I talk, we find out that they set us against each other. No dinner now. No, just kidding. <laughs> we tell them, if Mommy says one thing, that means Daddy says the same thing. Okay? But there's a bit of delay. We have two different minds, two different plans sometimes. We're two different natures. One of us is kind of learning, catching up. This is not so with the case of God. The Spirit only speaks what he hears the Son saying, who only speaks what he hears the Father saying. There is no lag or delay in this. This is not a statement about cosmic telephone. It's a comment about the way that the Spirit is. He eternally comes forth from Son and Father. And in time, the Spirit brings to us everything that Jesus has received from the Father. This is the mission of the Spirit. Verse 14, speaking of the Spirit, he will glorify me because he will take from what is mine and declare to you everything that the Father has is mine. This is why I told you that he takes from what is mine and will declare it to you. You see, the Holy Spirit is always and only about Jesus Christ because everything is about Jesus Christ. Jesus is the word in which we were created, John 1.1. He is the word that holds all things together, together Colossians 1.17. He is the one through whom and to whom all things are being reconciled, Colossians 1.20. He fills all things in everything. He fills all things in every way, Ephesians 1.23. Jesus gives shape and character and meaning and life to everything that is created. He is our God and our Savior. Apart from him, we cannot see and know the Father, John 1.18. The Spirit's entire mission, then, is about testifying to, revealing, bringing glory to, making much of Jesus Christ, the only one in whom we can be saved, the one whom we were made by and for. The Spirit only speaks about Jesus, and we can only speak about Jesus in a meaningful way through the Spirit. If we want Jesus, we need the Spirit, and the Spirit is only about giving us Jesus. There are probably two tendencies that Christians have 
with the Spirit. One is to be uncomfortable with any kind of Holy Spirit talk. To just completely avoid the Spirit, right? Like, like an uncle in your family. You know he's family, but you don't talk about him. Right, the Catholic or Universal Church is known better. In the Nicene Creed, we confess, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. The Spirit is God and is therefore worthy to be worshipped as God. Apart from His touch, we would be dead. Apart from His illumination, we would be confused. Apart from His guidance, we would be lost. We need Him to speak to us. Without the Spirit's work, we do not have Christ. We need to be Holy Spirit people. Again, this starts humbly in prayer before the Word. The other end of the spectrum is to make much of the Spirit in a way that actually distracts from His mission. These ministries tend to highlight new revelations of the Spirit that extend beyond the words of the Son and Father. Their Spirit tends to be more active and louder. The Son tends to be quiet and absent. But Jesus here is telling us what the Spirit is about. Verse 14, He glorifies. He makes much of. He reveals not himself, but the Son. He takes everything that belongs to the Son and declares it to us. The Spirit is like a light, always and only directing the church's gaze to Christ. The Spirit is like the rumble strips on the highway, keeping us on the way, the truth, and the life, which is Jesus Christ alone. And how does he do this? It's through the truth. Look at Christ's stress here. Verse 13, he speaks, he speaks, he declares. Verse 14, he declares. Verse 15, he declares. The Spirit is a speaking and teaching Spirit, but he does this invisibly and interiorly always through the preaching of the Word. He is what gives the Word its power. Brothers and sisters, this is why we make much of God's Word here at NBC. It's why we read texts in the service, longer texts even. It's why we preach longer sermons. It's why we encourage family worship centered on God's word. It's why we study the Bible in our D groups. It's why we're sending eight sisters this week into a Simeon Trust workshop. We want to be about the Bible because it's what God the Spirit uses to give us more of God the Son who is drawing us back with him to the Father. This book is given to us to guide us through a world that is set against us. This book is given to us to make our children wise for salvation. This book is given to us that we might see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There is no following Jesus or walking in the Spirit or clinging to the Father apart from this book. And the Spirit loves. He loves to declare the goodness of Jesus through the preaching of his people. It's his mission Brothers and sisters, you can preach the word with confidence to one another knowing that the Spirit loves. He loves to add his infinite power to your words. Brothers and sisters, use the Bible. Use this to encourage the weak, to rebuke the proud, to call back the lost, to comfort the broken. Brothers and sisters, you can preach the word with confidence knowing that in it we find Christ. And in Christ, the Spirit leads us to the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 
Brothers and sisters, you can preach the word from the center of our city to the ends of the earth, knowing that it is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. Brothers and sisters, are you confident in the Spirit's power? A good litmus test is, are you confident in his word? It is through this that the Spirit warns the world and saves the children of God. It is through this that the Spirit leads the church into all truth. You see, far from leaving us alone, Christ has come near to us in the Spirit. He has given us his own Father and he has given us his people. Far from leaving us helpless, he has given us his word. And the Spirit does what he's done for 2,000 years. He guides us into all truth by directing our gaze upon Jesus Christ whom we find in Scripture. Brothers and sisters, I would encourage you this morning to preach the word in the power of the Spirit. Preach the good news that Christ has overcome our sin. Preach the good news that he has given us his righteousness. Preach the good news that he has defeated our enemy. Preach that he has gone to make a home for us, that he is coming again. Preach knowing that the God of the universe goes to work through you when you open his word. Preach knowing that he is pleased to make his power perfect through your weakness. Jesus is indwelling you through the Holy Spirit who is eager to declare the glories of Christ as you open his Bible to a world who so desperately needs him. Preach. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have not left us alone. That though we did not recognize you or your son, that we turned away from you, that you would still pursue us. We thank you that you came to us in a way that we could understand by becoming man in Jesus Christ. God, we thank you that you have given us understanding through the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the gift of your word, which is perfect, for the gift of your spirit that causes us to understand and believe. God, I pray that we would be a people who love your word, who don't take for granted the gift that you've given us in it. I pray that we would believe that your spirit adds power through the preaching of the text. I pray that we'd be bold in our evangelism, that we would be bold in our relationships with each other to courage, to confront, to lift up, to build up, for the sake of the glory of Jesus Christ in this church and throughout the world. We pray this in his name, amen.